Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Since Russia launched its illegal invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, moves to limit or ban Russian state media and propaganda have rapidly escalated across the European Union and in the United States. This week, the EU issued a regulatory amendment banning RT, or Russia Today, and Sputnik, declaring that the Russian Federation has engaged in a systematic international campaign of media manipulation and distortion of facts in order to enhance its strategy of destabilization of its neighboring countries and of the Union in its member states, unquote. Companies such as Meta, which operates Facebook and Instagram, have restricted or demoted access to Russian state media, while the Russian government has reportedly restricted access to Facebook, Twitter, and independent news sites inside Russia. The cascade of developments harkens back to the World War II era, when governments regarded German propaganda as a weapon of war and used tools such as shortwave radio to reach citizens behind enemy lines to counter the enemy's message. The BBC, as if to underscore this point, announced Thursday it would resurrect the use of shortwave radio to broadcast news into Ukraine and parts of Russia. In order to put these developments in historical context, I spoke to two experts in the role of information and media in war. Heidi Twarek, a Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor of History and Public Policy at the University of British Columbia, and author of News from Germany, The Competition to Control World Communications, 1900-1945. Her book details how the Nazis used news and information to advance their agenda. And Emerson Brooking, resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which considers how social media is changing the nature of war and conflict. Our discussion touched on interventions that the United States and Britain engaged in to counter the Nazi media and propaganda apparatus notably including investments in public media intended to provide a compelling alternative. And while some observers have suggested that Russian disinformation appears to be less effective in the face of the gruesome spectacle of the invasion of Ukraine, Torek and Brookings suggest it is too early to assess it will have no impact on this war. And there are unique aspects to the function of social media platforms that make them difficult to compare to earlier forms of communications technology, including the ability to serve as a medium for the broadcast of messages as well as coordination, and the algorithmic and monetization systems that create secondary effects not just in war, but also by other actors who seek to exploit the public sphere. Understanding these dynamics in wartime may provide some clarity as we consider how these platforms should be governed in the future. Here's Heidi and Emerson. Hi, I'm Heidi Tvorek. I'm a Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor of History and Public Policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm Emerson Brooking, a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council. I'm very grateful the two of you can join me today. Heidi, in your book, there's a phrase in the introduction, patterns that often seem new are actually quite old. Um, and that's, that's really kind of what I wanted to uh, talk about today is the extent to which um, there are things we might learn about the current moment in the uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia and the way we're thinking about information, disinformation, media from the past and from past conflicts. I noted that you pointed to a British intelligence report in 1936, lamenting that Germany was now daily flooding the world with news while the Soviets condemned German news as 
a dangerous element for the interests of peace. You point to German investment in international news networks dating back to as early as the turn of the century. With a broad brush, explain what the German state did to invest in its news and propaganda effort in the early part of the century. Yeah, so basically around 1900, many German elites come to believe that Germany should be a global power. And we've often thought about this in political or economic terms, right? Acquiring colonies or amounts of foreign trade. But what I really show in this book is um, they also come to believe that news is a fundamental pillar of global power. And this is across the political spectrum, right? It's industrialists, it's academics, it's politicians who all come to believe that news is a fundamental part of global power and that Germany is far behind. So what they do really from the from the turn of the 20th century onwards is to invest in a new technology, wireless, which later becomes radio technology, to try to project German power around the world. And what I show in this book is really this, this continues all the way through until World War II. And of course, the, the type of news that the Nazis are sending out is radically different than what came in the Weimar Republic, for example. But I think it's really important for us to understand what happens in World War II and in the Nazi period as actually a longer 30-year story of beliefs that, that news is important for global power, investing in technology, and that the Nazis really are able to take advantage of a network that had been built over the previous 30 years. So news agencies as means of influence, the ability to achieve geopolitical, geoeconomic, cultural goals, means to build power, often preceding the use of military power. Yeah, exactly. And I think one other point to make is that one of the reasons that the Germans get really interested in news agencies specifically is because they're actually interested in this power being hidden. Right? So they're not interested in everybody knowing that this is news from Germany. They actually really want to try and influence news a step further, right, behind the scenes. And they find news agencies to be this, this really efficient bottleneck, right? So, so at the time, you have a news agency cartel. There are just a few news agencies who have global reach similar to today. And so Germans identify news agencies as the most efficient part of this bottleneck to try to control. And then the, the second corollary is then when people are reading news in their newspapers, they don't realize it's coming from Germany at all. And that seems to be the most effective way to try to change people's minds. You talk about in your chapter on the limits of communications, the, the efforts of the Nazis to also limit independent media in Germany to crack down on journalists, control public opinion. Uh, and eventually all of that effort comes under the thrall of the propaganda ministry. Yeah. So when the Nazis come to power, one of the first things they're interested in doing is really trying to be able to control domestic media. And they do this on, on multiple fronts really quite early. One is to try to use uh, companies to buy up all of the independent media. So they do that through a whole host of things. For example, they forbid people from owning more than one newspaper, and they use a, a shell company to purchase as many newspapers as possible. And um, the second thing they do is they promulgate laws, uh, one called the the editor's law, which only allows, obviously removes uh, Jewish people from being journalists, but also places certain requirements on who can be journalists. So you effectively remove all of the more sort of uh, left-wing people outside of the, the journalistic space. And the third thing they do is, is they merge two news agencies that existed before into one news agency called um, the Deutsches Nachrichtenbüro, or the DNB. And they restructure it so that um, actually most of the news they're collecting doesn't necessarily go out to the public at all, but is actually for internal party use. They basically start to create a color-coded system where some news is sent to Hitler, some is sent to lower echelons in the party, and then some of it only is sent out to 
newspapers. So we see multiple ways in which the Nazis try really quite quickly uh, to control media. And maybe one final thing I'll, I'll say, Justin, is that uh, one thing that, that the Nazis actually control from the very beginning is radio. And this is for a deeply ironic reason, uh, which is that during the Weimar Republic, radio is, is created, right? So from the early 1920s, you start off public radio. And the man who's in charge of it is a man called Hans Bredel, um, who believes that radio should be used to bring together the population after you know, the terrible ravages of World War One. So you should use entertainment and education to bring people together. Um, but Bredel is concerned as the 20s roll on that there are considerable divisions uh, within German society. And what he thinks you need to do to preserve democracy is actually to have state supervision of content on the radio. So there are multiple reforms in the late 20s, early 30s that create state supervision of radio content. And Bredel does this with the idea this will protect democracy. But of course, ironically, when the Nazis come to power, it means, bing, they have immediate supervision of radio content. So we have actually from the very beginning, and even in August of 33, um, Joseph Goebbels gives a, a speech where he says, you know, the Nazis couldn't have come to power and, and seized it and kept it as they did without the airplane and the radio. And this quotation is often used but misunderstood because what Goebbels is saying is the airplane helps the Nazis come to power, makes Hitler appear like this modern leader who can go and give speeches all around Germany in one day, um, but it's radio that helps them stay in power. So I think that's an important bit to understand, the difference between the amount of time it took to control newspapers and how they could really control radio from the very beginning. Emerson, your book chronicles social media and the internet and its role in warfare and conflict, but you start with Clausewitz. How has information propaganda played a role in warfare over these centuries? First, it's it's excellent to get ID's perspective on this. When my co-author and I started writing Like War, we knew the, the first thing we needed to do was a review of communications history to... Uh, even as we wrote about the effects of the internet on war, to pierce through some of the more you know vacuous claims that social media has changed everything, or or every communications medium is is different. There were some clear through lines we wanted to get at. In our book, we do focus on Clausewitz's famous maxim that war is a continuation of politics or policy by other means. And Clausewitz was a, a early 19th century Prussian military theorist. He, he was saying essentially that the rules of politics aren't thrown out the window as one turns to a state, uh, turns to political violence. The political violence was just another tool in the toolbox after uh, economic coercion or diplomatic pressure had been exhausted. Glasswitz tells us when you're in a state of war, you realize your objective by focusing on the enemy's center of gravity. And at Glasswitz's time, right off the Napoleonic Wars, the enemy center of gravity was clearly their military, their ability to resist what you were imposing by force. As we go into the early 20th century, we see the, um, the rise of uh, military aviation. And there's a new school of thought uh, in strategic bombing that maybe the adversary's center of gravity is um, their civilian industry that you could fly over an enemy's armies and directly attack the civilian population, decimate their industry, remove their ability to resist that way. But also really starting in the twenties is this other competing school of thought, which focuses much more on war propaganda. And this notion that maybe even in, in a, a state of violence, you could focus on shaping perceptions and targeting an adversary's population in order to remove the, their support for a given conflict. 
that through a process of persuasion and psychological dislocation, you can still reduce the enemy's ability to fight their true center of gravity, um, that you could realize your objective through that fashion without ever firing a shot. The thinking of these early students of war propaganda, uh, it, their ambitions often outpaced what was possible with the given technologies. In our book, we, we and, and Heidi will know a lot more about this, but in our book, we, we talk about some of the Nazi efforts to reach Irish nationalists, the way that they, they had hours of uh, a Gaelic language programming, and uh, we're trying to open up a new front against Britain. But even if there were individuals who were sympathetic to that broadcast, they had to have a radio, they had to have it tuned to the right frequency, they needed mechanisms by which they could find each other and organize. And that just wasn't possible with th that sort of technology. But the internet enables individual interaction, and of course, mass transmission at incredible speed. So in that sense, it really does change the dynamics of warfare and the importance of information manipulation toward realizing your objectives. Looking at the apparatus that Vladimir Putin has built over the last two decades or more with Russia Today, Sputnik TASS, um, and then a whole range of other outlets that are more loosely affiliated with the Kremlin, influencers, Russian influencers who are aligned with the Kremlin, uh, and then of course, all of this covert activity that has come to light over the last few years, particularly since 2016, uh, perpetrated on social media. How do you kind of think of that in comparison to you know, what the Nazi regime was able to build before World War II? So I guess you know one one way that I think about it is is exactly this point of how it takes two decades to get there. So that that's one really important context that I think we need to keep thinking about is is how do we get to this point? So that's one. Two is that it's usually a good indicator when a country is turning to this kind of information warfare that they have other ambitions, right? It doesn't usually stay in the information space. Um, and we see that, you know, Nazi Germany is obviously uh, one example of that, but I think that's also important to bear in mind. And maybe the, the third part that's quite interesting is to see actually um, prior to, to this war, so a few years ago, um, some suggestions of sort of bringing back some of the types of laws and, and actions that were created precisely to, to guard against Nazi um, information incursion into the US, namely the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So it was actually created in, in 1938, precisely because the US was worried about Nazi journalism, et cetera, et cetera. So it required those who were um, foreign agents to, to register. And I actually detail one case in my book of um, some news agency employees of a German news agency who, who don't register and then they're um, arrested. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover gets very interested in this. And then eventually what happens in 1941 is that um, the Nazis actually uh, arrest a couple of United Press American employees um, in retaliation, and there's a prisoner swap, and then this Nazi news agency is put on trial, but there's no people, and then it's convicted as an espionage agency. And this, in many ways, so far remained on the books, but it was really sort of resurrected over the last uh, few years as a method to try and deal with um, not only Russian outlets, but potentially uh, Chinese ones as well. And I think there's a a question then about why why we stop there. I think there are question marks about whether that's um, particularly effective, but also as as to why we we didn't really think about the dynamics of social media more when we were discussing Farah. And we have seen uh, both RT, uh, I believe, and also uh, Sputnik forced to register as foreign agents just in the last couple of years after the Mueller investigation. Something I find fascinating about the 
use of the internet in these contexts is that early thinking, even from uh, nations that the U.S. would describe as adversaries today, like Russia or Iran, early thinking from these countries didn't really regard the internet as, as a weapon or something to be militarized in quite the same fashion as previous technologies, previous communications mediums. The sort of military co-option of the, the telegraph or the radio happened pretty early in the life cycle of these technologies. But in the case of the internet, it was developed out of US military research, but then US military determined there wasn't much utility in the project. So they commercialized it. Is it spread around the world? Many countries that had extraordinarily harsh censorship regimes in, in other communications still maintained a, an open and free internet for, for decades because censors who'd grown up with radio and television as the, the means of political discourse didn't see that much threat in this new medium. And that really only changed in the early 2000s. And specifically when we think about Russia, it's important to emphasize that RT was a, a channel for Russophiles, even in the mid-2000s. It was, it was broadcasting Russian ballet. It was something you tuned into if you appreciated Russian culture, but it was, it was highbrow. It was like an international NPR sort of situation. And that really started to change around the time of the 2008 invasion of Georgia by Russia. And then we, we, we do begin to see a much more deliberate effort to create an online influence apparatus. But this is a fairly recent development in the life cycle of the internet. I'd love to just talk a little bit about both of your impressions of that apparatus um, and how it has changed perhaps since 2008 um, and you know, since 2016 when Klieg lights got turned on on some level when researchers and uh, politicians and uh, people concerned about uh, the Russian effort in the 2016 election in the US and, and Brexit uh, really started to pay very close attention. What, what do you make of this apparatus? How, how effective it has been? And maybe then we can get into what's going on at the moment. If I were to look to one turning point in, say, the Russian approach to the internet, it might, might have been the, the 2009 Green Movement in Iran, because uh, the Green Movement or the Green Revolution is a precursor to the Arab Spring, but it was seen as um, Western technology companies providing the platform for these pro-democracy activists. But if you weren't in the pro-democracy camp, and if you're already suspicious of Western intentions and technologies, you saw this as an act of information warfare. And you see a lot of Russian military writing uh, talking about this as an information attack. And of course, you see similar writing out of uh, China and Iran. The, in the tail end of the Arab Spring, there was the most significant protest movement against Putin in his time in power. And he took that quite personally. He took quite personally the fact that then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had endorsed these protests against his rule. So not only was the U.S. launching these information attacks abroad, but now it was specifically targeting Russia. So even before um, Maidan in Ukraine, Russia knew and was, was sort of re-gearing uh, for this information battlefield. And then events in 2014 uh, basically cemented their course. And when I think about the effectiveness of the Russian propaganda apparatus, in part because events over the last week have uh, shown some profound weaknesses in Russian propaganda and public messaging, it's made me 
sort of look back on how effective the apparatus was all along. Because for years, you know, we were, we were, we talked all the time about Russian bots and trolls. There was this suggestion that uh, Russian actors were hiding in the shadows, manipulating all parts of our political discourse. But as time has passed, I, I really think that the um, Russian operation targeting the 2016 election was so, it was almost a black swan event. It was an event in which the Russian military, military thinkers and the Russian government had spent years thinking about and preparing for this sort of, sort of information warfare. The US and the West were blithely unaware. They had given virtually no thought to the way that their social media platforms could be weaponized in this fashion. So it was this mismatch of intention and preparedness, which made that moment of Russian influence and Russian information investment so powerful. But as I, as I look at the tools they have available today, I'm pretty confident that uh, the West can meet any of the, the propaganda that they're churning out. Yeah, so maybe I'll just add two points. One is that, of course, the ability for any of this relies upon a social media ecosystem as it currently exists, right? And I think it, it just spurs us once again to look at a system in which scale is everything and in which monetization is key. That goes back to my point about FARA, right? You can make RT and Sputnik register as foreign agents, but they were still profiting from ads and they were being promoted by algorithms on, say, YouTube, et cetera. And that's what was so odd about that moment, the disconnect between the registration and then what one would think would have followed as a, as a broader discussion about how the ecosystem of social media was still enabling this stuff to spread. So that's one thing. But I think the other is, is this question about effect that, that Emerson was pointing towards. And I, I think that here... The history is also helpful because we often see a disconnect between elite concerns and beliefs about what news and information can do and what is actually happening on the ground. And this is a, a common disconnect, right? Um, and, and I show it in my book, right, how, how there are evolving ways over the first half of the 20th century and how elites try to measure what publics are thinking. Um, and so in, in 2017, I, I wrote a piece which was um, really talking about how I think a lot of the, the fear around Russian disinformation was really drawing on these much older beliefs about crowd psychology from Gustave Le Bon, and that some of that was actually quite misplaced. And I will say that I caught a lot of heat for that piece. Um, but I think now in 2022, if we go back and reread it, I think a lot of people might agree. And, and I just want to make a final point, which is um, just because it might not have as broad-based an effect, it doesn't mean that it's not important. So that was never what I was trying to say. The fact that it exists and it shows these weaknesses in a social media ecosystem is deeply important because we've seen all sorts of other people, whether for uh, economic reasons or political reasons, exploit these ecosystems. So even if it doesn't necessarily have the effects that we feared, it doesn't mean that it's not important to understand. So in the dialogue that we're seeing happen now, just, and we're, you know, I'm talking to you, we're, we're one week into this war. There are some columnists um, and thinkers who are say, saying somewhat similar things. Uh, Farhad Manju in the Times has a piece today, Putin no longer seems like a master of disinformation. Do you think it's 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 right to kind of come to these conclusions that we should uh, perhaps, and I'm, I'm being maybe slightly hyperbolic with their arguments, but count uh, the role of Russian disinformation out from this point in this conflict? Absolutely not. I think there's a deep irony as we look at the course of Russian military operations now, because in 2014, with the Russian invasion of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, the Russians showed how one could use disinformation and obfuscation to effectively cover a military operation. 
um, they were the pioneers in this space. You know, uh, U.S. military thought is focused now on, uh, quote, hybrid warfare and the gray zone for the better part of a decade because of Russian activities. They were masters in this space. And what's truly remarkable is that they, they had this established playbook, which still might have worked quite well. Economic coercion, the continual massing of forces uh, at the border, um, political infiltration, propaganda. These things could have served over time to fulfill Russia's strategic interests with regard to Ukraine. But instead, an invasion with 190,000 soldiers, tank columns rolling over the border, uh, the largest land war in Europe since World War II, you can't use disinformation and bots to mask something like this. So instead, what I, what I think we see is a, a profound mismatch with uh, the strategy that Russia adopted in 2014 and the strategy that Russia is adopting now. That being said, there's been quite a lot of social media euphoria in the last few days among Western observers with regard to the war. And Ukrainians have been extraordinarily brave. But there's also a conventional mismatch which uh, in military capability that will be very hard for Ukrainians to overcome. And as the fighting turns increasingly uh, to urban warfare, as uh, the atrocities mount, and as um, Ukrainians in arms way are understandably exhausted, I, I think the current situation will become much more complicated as Russia begins to endorse sham pieces, as the uh, Ukrainian army and Ukrainian partisan resistance potentially split into different factions, uh, particularly if President Zelensky is assassinated, as is the Russian intention. Is the environment becomes more complicated. And as the realities of war really hit home, I think Russia will again turn more to its, its focus on disinformation, the sowing of discord and uh, its propaganda messaging. And at that juncture, I think it will be much more effective. Yeah, I agree that we uh, one, one cannot know what will happen after the first week of a conflict. And we were only at the, the very beginning of this. It's extremely hard to, to predict how it will unfold. But maybe a, a couple of thoughts are just that I agree that, that there's been a sort of knee-jerk then to move to the exact opposite, right? That the Russian disinformation is completely uh, ineffective. But I think we're going to have to take a step back and really assess whether that's true. And we're also going to have to think about this on a global scale, right? We're going to have to think about um, what is happening in those 35 countries that abstained from the UN General Assembly resolution condemning this invasion. So I think that's that's one point. We we do not have uh, enough information that what is you know what is the thinking in India, for example, seems pretty crucial at a certain point, right? Um, and then the other part of it is, of, of course, we did see in the first few days some major figures, Trump included. Um, coming out somewhat in support of Vladimir Putin and how that unfolds over the next months, I think is is complicated, right? Um, so so that I think is is what potentially worrying for the, the US domestic scene. I mean, as Rasmus Kleis Nielsen from, from Oxford always says, we have to remember that disinformation also comes from the top. And so I think that may be uh, something that could change, right? Like Trump has changed his tune now and he sort of said Zelensky, sort of praised Zelensky, but I don't think we know where that goes. And that, that's potentially very concerning too. Is there any sense in which perhaps Putin believed his own propaganda in the run-up to this, um, that the sort of 
you know, image he was trying to build either of himself or of Russia played into his decision making. Is that is that a possibility in your mind that that uh, there's a kind of media effect, but more on the purveyor than perhaps on the receiver? Putin has at this point unitary control over the Russian state. Many people who might have checked him had either been neutralized or were fully in his camp. The the images we've seen of of, uh, Putin's government meetings and him in consultation with ministers shows that he's he's sitting 30 or 40 feet across from them. You can't get a better metaphor for um, his remove from reality. In our book, we did dwell in the context of President Trump on how the modern information environment was potentially dangerous for international relations because leaders who were, um, uh, say, connected to online spaces, we were thinking of Trump, but, but a leader who was, who was um, uh, scrolling through just the, the adulation of his admirers and um, the uh, uh, broadcasts of, of friendly news networks could lead to believe a, a very different, or could be led to believe a very different frame of reality. And I, I think that's clearly a, com- a component here. Um, it seems that the Putin's intention, and something which which some lackeys probably told him was true, was possible, was that the Russian army would go into Ukraine, and within a week, uh, the government of Ukraine would be replaced, and the Russian military could step back out, having declared a fait accompli before the West could organize any sort of reaction. Obviously, none of this has come true, but. I think there is so much to blame on uh, uh, Putin himself and his isolated decision-making. And I think modern information environment plays a factor in that. Yeah, like don't get high on your own supply, right? <laughs> but, but I think more, more seriously, you know, Fiona Hill has, has talked about this, but, but also emphasized there are things like um, Putin going back and having his, his own version of Russian and Soviet history, looking at older maps, um, talking about how borders in Europe have constantly changed. So... Um, how much the information environment is merely solidifying beliefs that he already had. And, and I do think here his biography is tremendously important, right? The fact that he's a KGB agent in East Germany in 1989 is such a formative experience that I think we need to account for that as well. So I, I'm not sure that this environment is really changing his opinion. It might just be uh, solidifying it because historians and, and others have certainly traced how far back these kinds of revanchist beliefs go. In the last 10 or so minutes we've got, um, I want to bring it back slightly to some of the policy questions here. You know, we've seen Europe now essentially ban a Russian state media, particularly RT uh, and Sputnik. Uh, we've seen the social media platforms take some action on their own to limit the distribution of Russian uh, propaganda and state media channels, particularly in Europe and in and around the war zone in Ukraine. Um, what do you make of these policy interventions? Are they enough? Are they too much? Um, and what should remain after potentially this conflict is over, whenever that might be? You've mentioned Farah. You've mentioned that we we took some actions in the 30s to try to prevent what we saw as, as, as some dangerous uh, intervention in our information space. Um, did we relax too much? Do we need to go back to a more power-oriented conception of information? Or do you think that ultimately that will not work? 
Yeah, I'm going to throw out a, a couple of, of points here. And I think one is that, of course, our knee-jerk thing that feels good is to ban stuff. But it's incumbent on us as people who are thinking about policy and the press to take a bit of a step back from our knee-jerk feeling that that's a good thing to do and really ask ourselves these, these broader questions about where we want to go. Um, so in terms of, of thinking about the kind of World War II context, what we see is the, the far, there's the far example, but there's also um, the example of the UK, which actually doesn't ban, for example, the radio propagated by Lord Hawhaw, who was a, a man pretending to, to be Irish and so on. So we see that instead what happens in Britain, and this also happens when the British Foreign Office discovers that German news agencies are sort of propagating news around the world, their reaction is not so much to ban, but it is to strengthen public radio. Right? It is to invest in the BBC. So I think we need to remember that that's an alternative here, right? That one of the things one can do instead of knee-jerk talking about bans is actually to reflect on how do we strengthen our own media. So uh, that was public media in that case. In the case of the US, right, World War II is the period of setting up things like uh, Voice of America. So there are these sort of alternatives that I think we need to, to keep talking and thinking about that are not so much uh, relying on bans, but instead on thinking about how do we strengthen our, our own media environment. Having said that, I think it is important to be having these conversations about monetization on, for example, social media platforms. So you can have something available, but it doesn't mean that you have to promote it. And that's a sort of fundamental difference from this World War II moment when, as Emerson said, right, you have to have a radio, you have to be able to tune into that station. Here, what we're seeing is sometimes uh, something like RT or Sputnik being suggested to people through an algorithm. Um, and so I think that's where we need to have a bit more of a conversation in figuring out um, what kind of reach. So if we say, listen, it's actually very helpful for people to potentially to be able to see what RT is saying, but that doesn't mean that we have to promote it and we can label it in ways that make very, very clear what this is while simultaneously really thinking about how do you strengthen a democratic media environment as a counter. And maybe the um, two other points to add, one was made by Canadian scholar Vivek Krishnamurti is that actually under the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 20, um, you may have grounds to be uh, banning things like RT and Sputnik for spreading war propaganda. Um, so that's, I think, a really important and interesting point to, to throw into the mix. And then one other thing which David Kay has brought up, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, is that we also have to think about the potential retaliation within Russia and how do we ensure that there are actually, as far as one can, obviously there's a limit to how much what the US or UK does is going to affect what Russia does, but thinking about how you um, ensure there are some lines of communication uh, with Russia and ensuring that those who may be protesting or otherwise organizing aren't completely cut off. And I think that's also a valid point to consider. So basically, knee-jerk, I get it, but I think there's a lot of other policy points to, to bring into the mix as we think about this in the broader long term. And I guess we have to distinguish too between bans by governments and the choice by a private platform to potentially limit, remove, or otherwise reduce the amplification of a particular venue. But Emerson, I don't know, do you have a, a perspective on this question? I mean, we're in a moment of extraordinary turbulence right now. It reminds me of um, actually the, the 2016 US election in the series of actions that technology platforms were taking, where it was a response to current events, and we're still not sure quite where we're going to land. I think severe action against uh, Russian media is justified because RT and other platforms are, I, they are an accessory to the Russian war effort. 
right now in the, the obfuscation of the extent of Russian activities in Ukraine. But pretty soon, there'll be more of a focus on the dehumanization of Ukrainians, the uh, equating of the Ukrainian army and Ukrainian civilians with terrorists to justify the likely executions and reprisals that Russian occupation forces are going to begin. I think action against those voices is justified. What I do worry about is the manner in which the platforms describe the actions they're taking and why. Um, and this is something where, where small differences in phrasing, I think, can matter a great deal for the precedent that we set. Earlier this week, Meta banned Russian state media properties in the European Union following the European Union's ban on those properties. Meta spokesperson Nicholas Clegg in a tweet said that, you know, after consultation with the European Union, we've decided to ban RT in these places. That's technically true, but that sort of thing sounds like uh, Meta is simply responsive to governments that have made content banning actions. And any number of authoritarian or, or undemocratic states around the world who try perpetually to ban uh, their own domestic opposition and who frequently appeal to the social media platforms to do this work for them. I think they all took note of something like that. And they will, they will cite that kind of statement repeatedly in the future as they try to engage in their own censorship activities. What Clay could have said, and, and what I think the reality is, is that um, platforms routinely receive legal requests to remove different accounts. As legal environments change, uh, the strength of those requests changes. If the European Union had banned RT, it makes total sense for Meta to look at that recent legal decision, refer to their own terms of service, and then make a determination to geoblock RT in that particular region. Geoblocking is the common response from platforms uh, with regard to these sorts of legal requests, and you can view all of them in the platform transparency requests, or transparency reports. So that's a well-established precedent, but it made it sound like an extraordinary wartime response. And I think the things that are being said now, which makes sense maybe in the heat of the moment, uh, will become much harder to defend as uh, time passes, and that we can go a long way toward preventing these future headaches and difficult content discussions if we we try to ground decisions now in, in established precedent, in terms of service, in the Supreme Court uh, for content that Meta set up not long ago, the Facebook Oversight Board. These institutions haven't gone away, and we need to reference them. And, and one last point I'll make is there's always a negotiation between platforms and unfree countries because they often make uh, odious requests for content removal. The platforms fulfill some of these requests, but they do so also because they can then stay open in these countries and provide a, a, re, a relatively free medium for political expression and, and one that's relatively free of state surveillance. The longer that social media companies can, stay, can provide some service in Russia, I think the better it is for everyone. In the first day of the war, the most prominent platform for, for elite dissent in Russia against the conflict was on Instagram. These platforms play a valuable function in the country. And I worry that the more aggressively even phrased uh, their actions are, say, with regard to RT in Europe, the faster we'll see these platforms totally removed from Russia.
I guess when the dust settles and we look back on the last 15 years or so of Russia building its presence on social media in particular, uh, broadcasting its state media there, using it for covert operations, the rest of that. Where do you think, if you had to guess where history may net out on that, what will we regard as the platform's role in leading us to this point or playing a role in leading us to this point? The social media platforms are a foundational part of modern political life. You can't separate their role from really any event that takes place today. But as we look back and try to understand the forces that led to this current horrible war, I don't think that the role of the social media platforms will be front and center, as um, it has, for instance, with uh, the uh, genocide in Myanmar, ongoing ethnic cleansing in Ethiopia. If you had asked most Russians a week ago, their thought toward Ukrainians, they, they view them as, as uh, brothers and sisters, maybe misguided, but certainly not, not all Nazis, not all genocidal maniacs, uh, not people who were are deserving of the, the sort of cleansing and uh, murderous force which Russia is using now. I think that when we, we look back on the origins of this war, it will rest almost entirely in the head of uh, Vladimir Putin. The platforms are the bat- one battlefield in which this war is playing out, but I don't think they bear particular responsibility here. Yeah, maybe I'll just add and say, I think when we look back on this, um, we will also have to contemplate bigger forces, right? Um, and that is oligarchy, the role of money. Um, and that will be, I think, something that is a much longer question. But, but I think there, the social media platforms are part of it because it's the question of who is invested in them. And so I think if we take a step back from what we've been talking about the whole time, which is content, and we really look at who was investing, and that is part of this broader story of oligarchy, which runs all the way from, you know, Chelsea Football Club to properties to yachts. And I think that is, you know, that is a story of taxes and transfers of money that we will really have to grapple with in a meaningful way. And maybe the the final thing that I'll say, you know, as a self-serving scholar is, of course, you know, we're going to need... Uh, more research, right, to really get a sense of, in some cases, more broadly, um, how attitudes to Russia have changed and whether social media platforms have played a role in that. But I agree in thinking about the origins of of this war, maybe in the sense of how people now understand Ukraine. Um, and perhaps actually, I'll say one final thing, which is, which is, of course, that Putin has been very brutal before. And our lack of understanding and knowledge of that has nothing to do with social media platforms. Um, It has to do with broader issues around education and what we pay attention to and what the media focuses on. And that, I think, requires deep reflection. Putin began his career with uh, a terrible, a terrible um, oppression against Chechnya, right? Flattening Grozny. That was a long time ago. And, And yet we see a sort of lack of understanding of that. And we also see a deep lack of understanding of the history of Ukraine, um, something that the historians like Sergei Plohi have, have written about for some time. So I think these are some of the other much broader factors that we need to think about that go far beyond social media platforms. Heidi Emerson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening.
Pussy Press.